0: Every year in America, ambulances make more than 20 million runs to the hospital. Cyclists hit by cars, seniors paralyzed by strokes, kids shot by guns. These rides give people in some of their worst moments their best chance at staying alive. But they can also leave a lot of people feeling blindsided.
1: I thought I was prepared. I thought I covered my bases. But this ambulance bill. It rocked my world.
0: For patients with private insurance, as many as one out of every four ambulance rides could end up in a surprise charge. But cities and counties say they rely on these fees to fund life-saving emergency services. Today, the price patients pay for these unexpected bills and a federal committee's fraught plan to end them from the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. Precious Mae Clark likes to be prepared.
1: You know what? I'm an overthinker. I'm a, I'm a worrier.
0: She opens every bill as soon as it arrives, keeps a close eye on her credit score, and her hope is all of this worrying will pay off one day when she and her husband can buy a home.
1: I don't want a fantasy house. I'm not a fan of those. I just um I just want a house that that we can call our own where my daughter and my dog can run in the backyard. That's how I imagine our life.
0: Precious, who's employed by a lending company in Columbus, Ohio, has worked hard for that dream since arriving in the US from the Philippines in 2020. Last year though, she saw how shaky life here can be. A medical scare walloped her with a bill for nearly $5,000. The solution? More protection. More preparation.
1: I learned my lesson. I said this year, I'm going to get a lower deductible insurance.
0: She even bought extra coverage, a special policy that covers hospital costs just in case. And it turned out in January of 2023, she needed it.
1: I was just trying to open my eyes.
0: Doctors had just told Precious that her lung had collapsed. A tube ran to her ribs. Someone told her she needed to be transferred from this emergency room to a full hospital. But her lung, the tube, the transfer, all details. Precious focused on one thing.
1: I don't care what you do to me, but, you know, just make me, make me live. (laughs) Make me live.
0: Then doctors put her in an ambulance, 30 miles south to a hospital in Grove City, Ohio. In a strange room the next morning, monitors beeping, minds swirling, Precious was glad she'd prepared herself financially for this medical crisis.
1: I was super confident that I have a you know a good insurance, so I was I was calculating my copay, pay was calculating my, and I'm, I'm good. So no worries on that.
0: Yep, no worries, until a shock arrived in her inbox six months later.
1: I thought it was just like those $20 copays. But when I open it, it's like, I panic literally seeing at it. I panic like, what is this?
0: A bill, $7,370.45. Nearly twice what she and her husband make each month. Precious May freaked out.
1: Where am I going to get a $7,000? Maybe this is an error. Why is this so high? Was my insurance used by someone else? Why are you sending me another bill? $7,000. $7,000. $7,000. Kind of like clogged my brain.
0: Research shows that when a patient calls 911 or is transferred from one hospital to another, like Precious was that cold January night, more than half the time, Those rides are out of network. The insurance company explained to Precious the ambulance she rode in was not covered.
1: Does that even make sense that your insurance did not cover the ambulance that saved your life because it's not networked? Like, does that even make sense?
0: Like most people in crisis, Precious didn't have the time or the power to pick her ambulance like you might with a doctor or a dentist.
1: After the lady explained to me on the phone... I was talking to her and I was crying. I was just super angry with the system. It's just so frustrating. What frustrates me so much is that I'm paying extra for a better insurance. I'm paying extra every month on my paycheck just so I can get the peace of mind. And then suddenly that peace of mind was just like thrown out in the trash.
0: All that extra time money, and effort, spent trying to protect her family from a financial disaster? For what?
1: It sucks. It sucks that you're trying to work your ass off, be a good citizen, and yet you get something surprising like this, and you're not prepared for it.
0: Precious could imagine debt collectors calling, blowing through her savings.
1: To be honest, when I saw that bill... I lost hope living here. I thought it like, you're not going to go anywhere here because somebody's going to pull you back.
0: She was grateful for the care that had kept her alive. And because she was alive, she refused to let a bill sink her and her family. She called everyone she could. The hospital, the insurer, the ambulance company implored them to see her side of the story. She had no way of avoiding this ride. They had to reconsider.
1: It was a dead end with your insurance. It was a dead end with the ambulance. Like, that's it. I was like, I just felt the entire system is bullshit at that
0: point. Patients like Precious get tagged with up to $130 million a year in unexpected ambulance fees. Congress had a golden opportunity back in 2020 to end all of this when they banned nearly every other kind of surprise medical bill, but they punted. The reason has a lot to do with who is sending these bills. Sure, some come from for-profit players, but most come from places like the fire station down the street. So, that's where we dispatched senior producer Leslie Walker, Leslie's mission, follow the money. Better understand who these surprise bills are coming from and what all this money goes to.
2: My two favorite baseball teams, the San Francisco Giants and whoever's playing the Dodgers. (laughs) I
3: get to fire station two with the SoCal sun beating down on me and a few palm trees towering overhead. So yeah, in, in the fire station here, we have the engine company and we have the ambulance. Inside the firehouse kitchen with close-cropped hair and a crisp navy blue uniform is Pete Lawrence.
2: I'm the deputy fire chief for Oceanside Fire. I've been here 34 and a half years, and I run the department's finance, administration, billing, and emergency management sections.
3: The ambulance company that stuck Precious Mae Clark with her surprise bill is privately owned, but the majority of all emergency rides in the U.S. are delivered by government-run outfits like Pete's.
2: We run eight engine companies, one ladder truck, seven ambulances, and they together run about 24,000 calls a year. About 80%
3: of those calls are medical. Okay, thank you. Most uh, of them, garden variety, variety emergencies. The trauma, kinds of calls I saw as I rode around Oceanside with a couple of Pete's guys. Our first stop, an older woman who'd taken a spill on some concrete know, you, steps. You hit your head pretty good. Next, a 79-year-old struggling to stand. How long were you on the floor? And to end our run, Mike Presty, the firefighter paramedic, relayed a
4: call. A 16-year-old female, uh, she was presenting confused this evening.
3: Over about five hours, I saw Mike start a few IVs, attach neck brace, run some basic medical exams. But some other crews out that day were responding to some really serious stuff. Corona Beach,
1: traffic collision. Calls for
3: car crashes, a suicide attempt, a person on meth in crisis, a pair of kids who had taken a parent's pills. Chief Pete says teams have to be ready for the severe calls, plus wildfires, mass shootings, pandemics. That takes a lot of people power and a whole bunch of medical supplies. Essentially,
2: we are an emergency room on wheels. He opens up the side door to rescue Ambulance 212. This is a paramedic ambulance. Its uh, replacement cost nowadays is about four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And is that just the equipment when you say no, that? No, that's just the, the vehicle.
3: The equipment, Pete adds, is another hundred to hundred thirty thousand bucks. There's the usual stuff: a gurney, a stair chair, bandages, splints.
2: We carry backboards. We've got radios. Each radio is is about uh, seven thousand dollars.
3: Then there's the big ticket items: the drug box.
2: And all the medications inside that drug box are about $30,000.
3: There's a $40,000 heart monitor that can pace, can defibrillate, can send all these readings to the hospital from the road. And the Crown Jewel, a machine that looks like a sleek white carry-on suitcase.
2: It performs absolutely perfect CPR. You push the button and it goes. It doesn't get tired. It
3: doesn't take a break. It saves lives every year. Pete's voice even breaks a little, talking about the miracles he's seen this machine work. It's just, you've got individuals
2: who are clinically dead. And we turn them over to the hospital, and the hospital is got a fighting chance. Other than delivering somebody's child in the back of your ambulance, having somebody show back up at your station and thank you, is about as emotional as you're going to get. And it just is... An amazing experience.
3: In the earliest days of emergency transport, undertakers volunteered their off-duty hearses to shuttle neighbors to the hospital. Over time, the public's bar has been raised just a bit, says Dia Gaynor with the National Association of State EMS Officials. So
0: if you were to randomly, you know, survey citizens and
3: say, "If, if your husband was having a huge heart attack right now and you called 911, what would you expect? People are not going to say, oh, I expect a pickup truck and a guy with a box of Band-Aids, right? What's the public's expectation? A full-size ambulance, a well-equipped, well-trained crew who can save their husband's life, period. And arrive within 12 minutes. Today, cities and states often enshrine our ambulance expectations into law. In Oceanside, ambulances have to be on scene in 12 minutes 90% of the time, providing this high quality, potentially life-saving service means having a certain level of redundancy, inefficiency, having more expertise and more equipment than what many calls actually need. The cost of readiness for public and private
2: EMS providers is a huge cost for us, whether they go on a broken finger or they go on a cardiac arrest. You don't have the ability to say, leave us a message. And we'll call you back as soon as a unit's available.
3: Pete says when you add up all the costs, the tab runs about twelve hundred bucks per ride.
2: Our average reimbursement is about six hundred and ten to six hundred and twenty dollars.
3: That rate, says Pete, puts his team in a tough spot. Hit up patients, the people they serve, for the difference, or take taxpayer dollars, money that could instead be spent on libraries, homeless services, parks. But to the companies forking over 50 percent of that bill, they've paid their fair share.
5: It's one thing to get into a helicopter with a neurosurgeon and a team of nurses and a host of medications and machines keeping you alive. And it's another to get into the back of essentially a van with an EMT and drive for five minutes to get to a hospital. But somehow both of these bills are going to be in the thousands of dollars. It doesn't make sense.
3: James Gelfan represents large employers who pay some of these ambulance bills. He's president and CEO of the Orissa Industry Committee, sometimes called Eric. James says for him, the math here just doesn't add up. A paper in Health Affairs shows for-profit ambulance bills tend to run much higher than publicly run ones like Pete's. He also points to instances when a full fire truck shows up for someone with a sprained ankle.
5: And the cost of paying for an Uber for those individuals might be 8 to $10, but I'm sure that those ambulances are billing the city thousands and thousands of dollars for every ride.
3: Underlying these guys' fight over numbers is a fundamental question. Who should shoulder the cost of this, again, potentially life-saving service?
5: I think it's very easy to say that a patient shouldn't be caught in the middle or be charged a bill but it's a lot more challenging to say, how much should an ambulance be able to charge? And the insurance company or the employer that's gonna have to pay, how much should they have to pay? Pete Lawrence agrees,
0: those are the essential questions. The federal government even charged him and a committee of 16 other advocates and experts with trying to answer them. That committee rolls up its sleeves and Precious gets some good news Pretty much everyone in Congress agrees patients like Precious May Clark should be shielded from out-of-network ambulance charges. And pretty much everyone in Congress agrees they want to avoid defunding the Chief Peets in their own districts. Dia Gaynor of the National Association of State EMS Officials says the hard question for lawmakers is deciding who should pick the costs up instead.
1: There's no silver bullet here. If there was, we would have found it in the holster.
0: Fourteen states have taken matters into their own hands, passed at least some protections for patients. And experts say two approaches are likely to get the most interest from Washington.
7: Let local governments name their price and force insurers to pay it.
4: Just go with some percent of what Medicare pays and call it a day.
0: Those are our reporting partners for this story, Bob Herman and Tara Bano from STAT, the health news outlet. We asked them to give us the scoop on this pair of state fixes for surprise ambulance fees. First up, Tara Bano, who looked at the solution known as a local rate setting. Tara, what, what's the basic idea here?
7: So this approach does two things. First, it bans ambulance providers from billing patients extra for out-of-network rides, like what happened to Precious. Second, It makes the patient's insurer pay more instead. Exactly what the insurer owes is based on a rate that's set by either a city, a county, or another local authority. These rates already exist in a lot of places. The purpose of these laws is to force health insurers to actually honor them.
0: And how many states have passed this type of law, Tara?
7: four states so far, Uh, and they're all very new laws. Arkansas and Louisiana's laws took effect in August, and Texas and California have similar ones, and they're taking effect in January of
0: 2024. So obviously, it's too soon to know how these laws are affecting the bottom line of insurers, fire stations, or for-profit ambulance companies. But what, at least in theory, Tara, is the biggest upside of this approach, aside, of course, from protecting patients.
7: I thought Butch Oberhoff, the president of Texas EMS Alliance, put the case pretty clearly.
2: Local elected officials are the ones who know best about the true cost of providing EMS in their own communities.
7: And you know, Dan, it's also hard to ignore that most of the states taking this approach Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, they're politically conservative places where raising taxes is very unpopular. So forcing insurers to pay these local rates is an appealing way to make sure that ambulance providers are made whole. Patients don't get surprises. Taxpayers don't get stuck with the tab. And I kind of
0: imagine this approach makes insurers and employers, the ones paying these rates, sort of nervous, right? Like, how much can they trust these home-cooked numbers?
7: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Critics argue that if ambulances can name any price, they lose any incentive to save money. Local governments could inflate rates, use insurers as kind of a cash cow to cover other costs.
0: And just to connect the dots here, Tara, that could ultimately hurt patients. If insurers' ambulance costs go way up, they could turn around and raise premiums on patients like Precious.
7: In theory, yes. Though for some perspective here, sources told us that ambulance costs are a very small sliver of insurers' overall costs. So it's unlikely that they radically change our premiums. Backers of this approach, like Butch in Texas, add that local rate setting is public and transparent. Finally, at least one of these laws does include a cap on how fast the local rates can be hiked.
0: Very good. Thanks so much, Tara. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Bob, your turn. You got the skinny on another approach states have taken to this tricky question.
4: That's right, Dan. So this other fix has been adopted by two states, Colorado and Maine. Rather than letting local governments name their price, these states did something different. They use what Medicare pays for ambulance services kind of as a benchmark, and then they go up from there. So in Colorado, private insurers agreed to pay 325% of Medicare's rate. And in Maine, they settled on 180%.
0: And so this approach, Bob, seems a bit more like a compromise, like the local ambulance providers, the Chief Peets won't get every dollar that they want, but they're going to get closer to what they think is the full cost of the care.
4: Yeah, I mean, how fair of a deal you think it is, it really depends on what you think of the rates Medicare pays. Now, as you might expect, insurers, they like the lower government rates. But ambulance providers, they say Medicare pays way too little. So in Colorado, ambulances run by cities, towns, and counties, they balked. They told lawmakers the offer for 325% of Medicare, they weren't going to participate.
0: Wait, three times the government's rate and they still turned it down?
4: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So patients who happen to take one of these publicly run ambulances in Colorado can still get hit with a hefty bill. But Dan, this whole Medicare benchmarking approach might actually be doomed at the federal level. I talked with Zach Gaumer. He's a consultant who used to advise Congress on Medicare policy. Zach's actually done the math. And he mapped out how the current rates that private insurers pay ambulances compared to what Medicare pays. And Dan, it was all over the place. The variation in the payments that I see suggests that Almost whatever level they pick, there's going to be significant winners or losers. It's going to be really, really hard for any member of Congress to sign off on a plan that slashes their ambulance services, obviously. Thanks, Bob. You're welcome, Dan.
0: Just last week, we got a glimpse at how a debate on the Hill might go.
4: There's a lot of blood, sweat,
1: and tears that have gone into this, so thank you so much for the significant time commitment.
0: Pete Lawrence and the 16 other members of the Federal Advisory Committee on Ground Ambulance and Patient Billing voted on a plan that will be delivered to Congress early next year. All right, Tara, if you'll take the vote.
7: Regina Crawford? Yes. Rhonda Holden? Yes. Patricia
0: Almost Again. every member agreed to end the surprises Patricia and instead charge privately insured patients a predictable max of $100 per out-of-network ambulance ride. But when it came to deciding what insurers and employers should pay for those rides, things predictably got sticky.
2: There needs to be a role of the local community. we wouldn't
7: have ambulance services. That's nobody's intention here. I think
2: that is imperative. But I also just think this is a huge bureaucratic boondoggle, And I just simply can't support it.
0: In the end, a majority voted to force insurers to pay whatever rate state lawmakers or local officials set with no cap on those rates. The other option, Congress using some multiple of Medicare, got just three votes. To end things, I want to bring back all three of our reporters, Leslie, Bob, and Tara, for a couple last questions. Bob, let's start with you. One thing I've been wondering is, why wouldn't lawmakers just go with the solution Congress already came up with in 2020 when they banned other surprise bills, force these ambulance providers and insurers to negotiate and reach a fair rate amongst themselves? Like, why reinvent the wheel here?
4: Well, the reality, Dan, is that negotiation or our arbitration process, as it's called, it's been a disaster. The federal government released a report and said in the last quarter of 2022, there's been more than 100,000 disputes alone. Now, imagine doing that for millions and millions of ambulance rides a year. That just doesn't seem tenable to most experts out there.
0: Fair enough. But I guess the alternative here of lawmakers, whether in Washington or on the local level, just just setting rates on their own seems like a tough sell too. Tara. What's the future hold here if Washington continues to kick this can down the road?
7: It's impossible to predict exactly how many more states would pass their own laws. But the truth is, Dan, no matter how many states pass these surprise bill bans, a huge chunk of patients in those states will still be exposed. Most people who get insurance through work in the U.S., it's about 130 million of us, get it from employers who manage their own insurance plans. These plans, they're called ERISA plans, are exempt from a lot of state regulations, including these surprise bill bans. And that's
0: the very same reason Congress decided to act on those other kinds of surprise bills back in 2020. Exactly. All right. Last question, Leslie. Let's get back to this issue that you raised in the first half of the story. You had that great quote from Dia Gaynor that we now expect a lot more than a dude in a pickup with a box of Band-Aids when we call 911.
3: I mean, I definitely do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Now, we just talked a lot about insurers and ambulance providers, but does the public also need to do something differently for this whole system to work?
3: yeah and you know, I'm glad we're coming back to this, Dan because it's easy to miss if like we only focus on the role of insurers here, and a few experts I spoke to, including Dia, said they do believe we need some kind of public reckoning around emergency services, and that starts with a more honest conversation about what an ambulance ride really is. Is it a taxi to the hospital? Is it an emergency room on wheels, or is it something more like a public service, like our police and fire departments? Our answer to that question could lead, as you can imagine, to some pretty different funding systems that health insurers may or may not actually have a large role in.
0: Right. If it's a public service, health insurers may not factor in much here at all. Right. And just like we asked Bob and Tara, Leslie, I'll ask you the same. Have states tried anything here that we can learn from?
3: Yeah. So I was actually surprised to learn that 13 states plus Washington, D.C. have passed these laws that designate emergency services as, quote, essential. It's kind of like a way to force local governments to figure out what level of ambulance service they want and how they're going to pay for it. And Matt Zavadsky with the National Association of EMTs told me those conversations could start to get pretty thorny. He pointed me to Charlotte, North Carolina, where Earlier this year, the county there did actually decide to lower their ambulance expectations and save taxpayer money. 911 callers with less urgent needs can now wait up to 60, even 90 minutes for an
6: ambulance. The reality is that local communities have a very difficult decision to make. What they want the service level to be and how much they're willing to fund. And that is the intersection of what your wallet can bear and your stomach can. Can withstand.
0: If Congress punts again on a path forward, public servants like Pete and patients like Precious will still be left in the lurch. For Pete, California's new law forcing insurers to pay local rates for ambulance rides applies to just a small fraction of bills. And a chunk of public money that Pete's team relies on from a local sales tax goes before voters in 2024. If that vote fails, Heats preparing to cut at least three ambulances from his fleet. As for patients, without federal protection, many will continue to rely on what's become a sadly predictable playbook in American healthcare. Pass a hat around on GoFundMe. Beg a journalist to shame your insurer. Spend hours on elaborate appeals processes. Precious opted for the latter two, with help from Stats' Bob Herman and a whole lot of her own letter writing. Precious heard back from her insurer on September 23rd.
1: I was like, was there an error again? I will have to owe more? So I opened it with so much, so much fear, and I saw it's zero dollars.
0: Her insurer had decided to pay the entire bill, chalked up the whole situation to a, quote, manual processing error.
1: And I saw it, like, we were jumping. Me and my daughter, like, oh my God, oh my God, thank you, Lord. And I was like, I felt like I won. Like, oh my God, I won a case in the court. (laughs) I'm still shaking right now because I did not expect it to be zeroed out.
0: After Precious, her daughter and their dog did their happy dance, they got in the car, and Precious remembers the song she played on her drive home.
1: This is my fight song Take back my life song Prove I'm alright song My power's turned on Starting right now I'll be strong I'll play my fight song And I don't really care if nobody else believes Cause I've got a lot of fight left in me
0: (laughs) A perfect song, says Precious but poor policy. People need more than some luck and a little fight. That's why she's sharing her story. She's hoping, she says, for change. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Trade Office. Medical errors can be devastating, even deadly. These losses are compounded when hospitals and doctors go silent. To abandon patients after you harm them is like you're leaving them alone at their point of greatest need. Next time on trade-offs, safety experts want programs to prevent errors and support patients to become the norm.
6: Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Tradeoffs. If you've just discovered us, remember to subscribe to the feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is free and easy on whichever podcasting app you use. NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you listen. The Trade-Offs team is producers Ryan Levy and Alex Olgan, editors Kate Cahan and Deborah Franklin, executive director Jessica Silverman, audience engagement lead Shannon Crane, research reporter Soleil Shah, with help from Kate Sepe, Kelly Osmondson, and Cedric Wilson, sound designer Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Trade-Offs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Tradeoffs coverage of healthcare costs is supported in part by Arnold Ventures and West Health. Additional thanks to Lauren Adler, Daniel Brown, Tony Chapman, Grady Ewald, Blaine Hensley, Jack Hoadley, Patricia Kelmar, Aaron Merson, and Natalie Simpson. Thanks also to all our listeners who help to support our work, including Travis Rupp. Our media partner is Side Effects Public Media, based at WFYI. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, West Health, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Sozose Foundation, California Healthcare Foundation, Just Trust, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of Tradeoffs staff, advisors, or funders.